I just ask that the public continue to keep U.S. Capitol Police and their families in, in your prayers. This has been an extremely difficult time for U.S. Capitol Police after the events of January 6th and now the events that have occurred here today. Yep. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Of course, I thought things were going to get uh, easier after Donald Trump left office, kicking and screaming, but uh, there are still some days of late where uh, things are not getting easier, where uh, one thing after another has led us to change our show three, four times yes. uh, throughout the afternoon. So we are going to... Hello, Desi Doyen. Hey. We are going to start here. The U.S. Capitol went into lockdown on Friday after a suspect killed one Capitol police officer and injured another with a vehicle, according to the Capitol Police. Uh, Capitol Police Officer William Evans was killed and a second officer was injured uh, severely after being rammed by a vehicle at the heavily guarded northern entrance to the U.S. Capitol. According to the acting chief of the Capitol Police, the suspect was subsequently shot and killed. Officer Evans is an 18-year veteran of the force. He served with the department's first responders unit. Uh, he was known to friends as Billy. He was injured in the violent confrontation and died shortly after, the uh, chief said in a statement. The second officer, who is still unnamed as we go to air, is said to be fighting for his life at this hour. After ramming the officers with his car, the attacker quote, exited the vehicle with a knife in hand and began lunging 
at the officers, according to Chief Pittman at a news conference. The the, uh, suspect in this attack was subsequently identified by a senior law enforcement official as Noah Noah Green. Noah Green, a 25-year-old man from Indiana. A National Guard quick response team and the local police force uh, were on hand at the already heavily fortified Capitol complex. Investigators do not yet know uh, at this hour again the motive for the attack as we go to air. But the attack was the most serious security threat at the U.S. Capitol since the deadly January 6th riot that injured dozens and killed Five people sent, in fact, sent dozens of U.S. Capitol uh, police officers to the hospital with very serious injuries. Five people were killed that day, including one Capitol police officer. Two others took their own lives in the uh, subsequent days that followed the Donald Trump incited insurrection at the Capitol meant to block Congress's final ratification of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory last November. If there are more developments in this story, in this still-breaking story, we will, of course, try to share them as the hour continues. But we have a lot of of breaking news uh, today, including, by the way, you tell me, Desi Doyen, that Matt Gates's Congressman Matt Gates's chief uh, chief of staff or spokesperson? No, spokesperson. Uh, Congressman Matt Gates, who's in the middle of a uh, of a bit of a scandal right now, uh, his That's chief nice communications yeah. person resigned today. So uh, that person uh, has quit as uh, Matt Gates is in the middle of all kinds of uh, scandals related, apparently, to. Uh, allegations that he had uh, sex with an underage, at least one uh, underage girl. No charges have been filed with him, uh, against him, I should say. So that is another quickly moving story that uh, you're welcome. We won't be able to cover today because of still more breaking news this afternoon. Uh, and these are uh, late breaking developments once again in regard in one sense, to what resulted in that attack on the U.S. Capitol, at least on January 6th. We have been covering this story uh, for weeks now, and and, uh, yeah, some breaking news here on this as well, just before airtime today. Major League Baseball will be moving this summer's All-Star Game from Atlanta, Georgia, in response to the recent passage of Georgia's restrictive voting law following the calls of other businesses to protect voting access both in Georgia and now in other states. The move, according to The Washington Post this afternoon, represents a decisive departure for a league that traditionally has been reluctant to involve itself in what it views as potentially polarizing political issues. Not sure that standing up for democracy should be regarded as a political issue, but I guess that's where we are now. The move follows a week in which executives from more than 170 companies joined the corporate push against what is going on in Georgia right now. Opponents of the Georgia law, which makes absentee voting more difficult and ID requirements more stringent than they were already in the Peach State, opponents see it correctly as making voting more difficult, particularly for people of color. The law would also give the Republican-controlled legislature essentially control over county elections boards, allowing partisans to cancel 
county boards of elections entirely and replace them with a single partisan to undermine or overturn election results as the Republican Party sees fit. Led by a large turnout of black voters who voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden last November, the state voted for a Democrat in a presidential race for the first time in nearly two decades, resulting in Republicans over one single day a week or so ago adopting this massive election overhaul in both houses of the state legislature before being signed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp, all within a seven-hour period on a single day. After spending the last couple of weeks avoiding taking really any position, again, in favor of democracy, corporations of all varieties now began finding Neutrality in this matter impossible after more than 70 black executives from major corporations decried the new voting restrictions. Then came an avalanche of statements from executives, including from Georgia-based companies like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola, whose CEO on Thursday, finally a week after its passage, described the bill as, quote, wrong and, quote, a step backward. On Friday afternoon, Major League Baseball became the latest significant entity to take a position in this, with Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred saying in a statement, quote, over the last week, we have engaged in thoughtful conversation with clubs, former and current players, the Player Associ Players Association and the Players Alliance, among others, to listen to their views. Manfred said, I have decided that the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport is by relocating this year's All-Star Game and MLB Draft. An action that actually has some teeth other than these uh, statements that have come from other CEOs. Yep. Uh, he went on to say Major League Baseball fundamentally supports voting rights for all Americans and opposes restrictions to the ballot box. Fair access to voting continues to have our game's unwavering support. Well, thank you, MLB. Uh, nonetheless, the Atlanta Braves quickly issued a statement saying they are, quote, deeply disappointed in the decision, saying we are saddened that fans will not be able to see the event in our city. Well, you know what, Atlanta Braves? Tell it to your elected Republican representatives, especially your governor who uh, raced, fell over himself to sign this bill in record time in hopes that voters... And companies like, well, the Atlanta Braves wouldn't notice what they were doing. And even after they did it, when Delta Airlines spoke out against this assault on voting rights, what did Republicans in the state house do in response to that? Well, they just they tried to pass a tax on jet fuel in order to specifically punish the company. And then Governor Brian Kemp attacked the company as well with a lie trying to take one more ill-considered shot at uh, Delta Airlines. Again, an Atlanta-based company because they dared to stand up for democracy. Responding to Delta Airlines CEO condemning Georgia's new voter suppression law, Governor Kemp offered a bad faith comparison to justify the state's stricter voter ID law, with Kemp saying in a statement, quote, the last time I flew Delta, I had to show my ID. 
He said today's statement by Delta CEO Ed Bastian ignores the content of the new law and unfortunately continues to spread the same false attacks being repeated by partisan activists. But, well, okay, uh, Governor Cap, as to that, uh, th- those false attacks, the last time, yes, the last time you flew Delta, you were asked to show your ID. But guess what, Governor Kemp? If you didn't have one, you would still have been allowed to fly. Unlike those who don't have the ID that you're asking for in the new law for mail-in voting. So setting aside uh, the fact, by the way, that flying is not a right. It is a privilege, unlike voting, which is a right. But I guess I have to explain this yet again, and uh, you can look it up for yourselves here on the TSA website, tsa.gov, because we hear this all the time. Oh, you need an ID for this, for that, for buying beer, for flying on a plane. Well, I don't know the last time I was asked for my ID buying a beer, but as to flying on an airplane, quoting directly from the official website today, tsa.gov, since Republicans love to falsely bring this up when talking about photo ID restrictions on voting. That, by the way, despite the fact that anywhere from 20 to 30 million Americans do not have the very specific type of photo ID that many GOP-controlled states now mandate for voting. So anyway, from the TSA website here, quote, in the event you arrive at the airport without valid identification, you may still be allowed to fly. The TSA officer may ask you to complete an identity verification process, which includes collecting information such as your name, current address, and other personal information to confirm your identity. If your identity is confirmed, you will be allowed to fly. Yes, even without a photo ID. Am I clear on that? Because I'll just keep repeating that over and over again for as many years as I need to through as many different administrations as they slightly change the wording of that. But that is a fact. No, you don't need a photo ID to fly on a plane, which, by the way, once again, is a privilege, a privilege of flying. It should never be compared to the right to cast your vote. So... Can't say I'm unhappy to see all of this blowback against Georgia Republicans once again disgracing the great peach state. But the good news is that big corporations, because apparently elected Republicans only care about the big funders uh, turning on them to hell with what, you know, actual residents, what actual voters have to say about these anti-democracy laws. Big corporations in other states like, for example, Texas based American Airlines And others are now issuing similar condemnation for similar voter suppression laws that Republicans, yes, in Texas, in the Lone Star State uh, Legislature, have been moving forward over the past week. They are now hearing blowback from a bunch of corporations before their law gets passed. That's good news. Hopefully now what is happening to Georgia will be a sign to Republican lawmakers in Texas and to those in Arizona and in Florida and about 43 other states who are trying to pull off this same crap based on false claims that the 2020 election was somehow stolen through either voter fraud or computer voting system fraud. They can't seem to get their story straight on that. Which one was it? 
But of course, that's because there is no evidence for either type of fraud in 2020. That said, I have been trying to get to this next story all week because it is big. It is important. It's a little wonky, but it affects elections in all 50 states and includes very real, not imagined, but very real concerns about the possibility of fraud in electronic voting and tabulation systems in our elections. And we have a longtime election integrity and security expert, again, a real one, not Rudy Giuliani, not Brian Kemp, a real one, uh, joining us next to explain the lawsuit that her organization, freespeechforpeople.org, has now filed against the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission. This week, after the uh, supposed federal watchdog for our electronic voting systems, the EAC, has, yes, pulled another fast one, it seems, to help out the private corporate voting system vendors that they're supposed to be overseeing and regulating. That story is next on the broadcast. And as usual, prepare to be enraged. I know it infuriates me. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Welcome back. To the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. For some years now, even before Donald Trump was somehow elected as president of the United States in 2016, we had been told over and over again by top federal officials, including at the Department of Homeland Security during congressional hearings and elsewhere, that there was no need to worry about hacked elections because voting systems, they claimed, were never online. They couldn't be hacked, at least not by a modem. Our voting machines are not connected to the Internet. Those are not connected. Voting machines themselves are not connected to the Internet. So why worry? That, as we have reported now for many years at bradblog.com, here on the Bradcast and elsewhere, is simply untrue. What those officials were saying is not the truth. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago, by way of just one example, that we spoke on this show with longtime cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter about the findings of a group of security experts who discovered more than 35 back-end uh, election tabulation systems essentially just sitting online pretty much all year around. The group found, according to Zetter at Vice's motherboard in August of 2019, quote, nearly three dozen back-end election systems in 10 states connected to the Internet over the last year, including, she wrote, in some critical swing states. These include systems in nine Wisconsin counties, in four Michigan counties, and in seven Florida counties, all states that are perennial battlegrounds in presidential elections. The systems the researchers found, she reported, were all made by Election Systems and Software, Inc., or ESNS, the top voting machine company in the country. 
The back-end systems discovered by the researchers on the Internet, even when the elections were not going on at the time, are used to receive encrypted vote totals transmitted via modems from ES&S voting machines on election night in order to get rapid results that the media then uses to call races, even though those electronically transmitted election night results are not actually the final results that are used, at least in theory. Still, Zetter warned at the time, the systems installed by ESNS contractors, which a number of county officials reported uh, that they had no idea were actually online at all during that time, those systems could potentially be vulnerable to outside manipulation from foreign or domestic hackers who could introduce malware to the system that might be able to affect election results. That was uh, August of 2019, about six months after Zetter's original report, NBC News finally picked up the story in January of 2020 more than a year ago, with assurances uh, from Homeland Security officials that voting systems were never online, warning that those claims did not appear to be true. Citing one of the researchers, Kevin Skoglin, who uh, we've had on this show several times over the years, noting that his group had found at least 35 systems left online, and, and even as uh, voting in primaries was underway in 2020, they were still continuing to find more of them. NBC's Cynthia McFadden went to ESNS headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska, and interviewed the company's CEO, Tom Burt, who admitted, There's a small percentage of jurisdictions in the country, a lot of them are in Florida, uh, who have decided that they want to modem unofficial results uh, to the election office. But as uh, McFadden appeared to confirm with ESNS, again, they are the nation's largest voting system vendor, that small percentage of voting systems actually includes some 14,000 modems in voting machines around the country. But they were only online for a very few seconds on elections day, according to uh, on election day, according to the ESNS uh, president. So we shouldn't worry. Of course, as the data researchers had showed, that was not true either, as they found many of the systems online year-round. Longtime voting system and cybersecurity expert Andrew Appel of Princeton, who has personally examined and or uh, test-hacked many of these voting systems that are still used today, uh, he's hacked them over the past 15 or 20 years. He explained to NBC why modems are such a danger in our nation's voting systems. Once a hacker is, starts talking to the voting machine through the modem, they can hack the software in the voting machine and make it cheat in future elections. Modems in voting machines are a bad idea. Those modems are network connections, and that leaves them vulnerable to hacking by anybody who can connect to that network. Well, why worry? Only 14,000 of them, according to ESNS, only for a few seconds. Well, despite the dangers, uh, there was nothing in the federal voting system guidelines for all of these years created by the Federal Elections Assistance Commission, or EAC, uh, almost 20 years ago now. Nothing in those guidelines that barred modems in our voting systems. But those guidelines were created for an earlier generation of voting systems, and the EAC has been working now for several years with computer scientists, cybersecurity, and voting systems experts to update the federal 
Voluntary Voting System Guidelines, as they are called, uh, or in this case, VVSG 2.0. These are the new guidelines that they've been working on for years. And the hope is that these new guidelines would increase security guidance for elections officials and voting machine companies producing a newer generation of machines, including touchscreen ballot marking devices, as well as optical scan systems that tabulate hand-marked paper ballots in all 50 states, where virtually every vote cast by Americans, and yes, even those on hand-marked paper, are tabulated by a computerized system. Now, while the EAC was working on these new guidelines, uh, as you may have heard, we held an important election in 2020 on the computerized systems, which many of them still included these modems. Despite an effort last year by election integrity activists to have jurisdictions remove those modems before voting began. Well, Most of the jurisdictions did not, as Trump-supporting conspiracy theorists eventually discovered last year, using that vulnerability as one of them to claim without evidence that voting machines had been hacked in a number of states where Trump lost. At the same time, the EAC was completing their work on the new, theoretically more secure voting system guidelines, which, as of the end of last year, following weeks of public uh, comments, advised that there should be no modems present in any voting system certified at the federal level under the new VVSG 2.0 guidelines. And then... Between the end, at some point, between the end of last year and the beginning of this one, something happened. And here's where it gets murky. Somehow, after what appears to be non-public meetings between top executives at the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission and with voting system vendors like ES&S, Dominion, and Hart InterCivic, the new guidelines, the VVSG 2.0, the proposed mandate that was in those guidelines saying that there should be no modems at all in voting equipment, that was somehow changed to once again allow those modems in in the latest generation of voting systems. How did that happen? And why did that happen? And why are the election system vendors so insistent that their machines include modems even as cybersecurity experts and election integrity experts have long warned against them. The nonpartisan, nonprofit group Free Speech for People, one of our favorites around here, has been trying to figure all of this out and has now, this week, filed a new lawsuit against the EAC after the Federal Commission failed to respond to a public records request from the group seeking documentation of why top EAC officials behind closed doors in apparent cahoots with voting machine companies made last-minute changes to the new federal voting system guidelines to remove the previous ban on modems. Joining us now for some help on just what the hell is going on here is a longtime indefatigable election integrity and transparency expert and advocate herself. She now serves as senior advisor on election security at freespeechforpeople.org. Susan Greenhall, welcome back to the broadcast. Hi, Brad. Good to be here. 
Uh, thank you for joining us. I, you know, I know this is a wildly wonky and confusing issue, uh, which is why I think it's uh, so easily buried. Uh, it's a story that has evolved over many, many years now, uh, and I know you've been following it for many years, but it is both very important, I think, and difficult to summarize. So, first, did I miss any key points there, or did I get anything egregiously wrong in, in my overview? I think you got the summary pretty well. It, it gets pretty complicated, um, mm-hmm. but there's there's some there's a part of it that I'll, I'll add here is mm-hmm. that there was this long process of developing the new versions of the standards, mm-hmm. and the EAC had rightfully opened it up to the public. They had these public working groups, mm-hmm. and I was a member, and there were a lot of prominent computer security experts were members, mm-hmm. um, the vendors were members, there were election officials that were members, and so we were giving input in the development of the guidelines. So we knew the process all the way up to a point um, when we had there had been a big discussion about including the any sort of wireless connectivity, not just modems, but chips or radios in the systems. Mm-hmm. And the election officials, um, in some cases, wanted to still be able to do that, and so did the vendors. And the computer security experts and the advocates were on the other side saying, no, 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 we absolutely can't do this. But we, in the public working groups, as these things were being drafted, we actually were able to prevail and, and get a provision written into the draft guidelines saying, you cannot have any sort of wireless networking capability mm-hmm. in the voting systems. And we were couldn't believe it. We'd actually kind of achieved this thing that had been such a pitched battle. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the standards went out for, um, for a public comment, which um, was part of the process, as well as being approved by various advisory boards of the EAC. And they were the same version, and we saw the same thing. And we were really, okay, it's there. It, it, the ban is in there. That's great. And then there was a meeting of the EAC last summer, and one of the members of the EAC had been asked, "We're he- from a from an election official. We're hearing questions from the vendors saying these new standards are too tough. They're too hard. That the vendors are never going to be able to meet them." And the EAC official responded and said, "Well, we're having meetings with the vendors." to discuss their concerns and uh, on a weekly basis, so we're taking that all into account. Don't worry. And my ears pricked up, and mm-hmm. I said, well, wait a second. They're not supposed to be meeting privately with the vendors. That's not in accordance with federal law when, it deal- when you talk about sunshine or administrative procedures requirements. And I immediately contacted the agency, the EAC, and mm-hmm. said, hey, I want to join those working groups, too. And I was you know, ghosted, both <laughs> not yeah. permitted to join. Um, so at that point, I said, okay, well, then I'll submit a public records request. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you're saying in those meetings. If you're not going to let me be part of them, you'd have this precedent of these public working groups, and now you're creating a new working group, which apparently is just for the vendors. Um and asked for those public records. That was last August, and um, we've gotten nothing from the EAC. They've produced not one document um, be from uh, August to now. Have they even responded to say why? Oh, we're very busy. We've got an election because this was, of course, right before the uh, presidential election. We got an election, or there's uh, the pandemic has slowed us down. Have they responded at all to your requests? Yeah, we got some responses like that for a while, um, and then they had and. 
they had said, well, we're going to give them to you on December 31st. And we said, great, okay, we'll get them on December 31st. And then that rolled by, and they said, okay, we're going to give them to you on January 15th. And we said, okay, that's, you know, we understand pandemic and, mm-hmm. you know, other things going on. You know, we were trying to be flexible, um, and then that rolled by and nothing happened. And um, they, you know, then then we didn't get anything substantive after that. Um and and no documents, not no. one document. And they, they did acknowledge that they had over 200, they'd identified over 200 documents that um, were responsive to the request, that this communication uh-huh. between them and the vendors, um, but they, uh, you know, haven't produced anything now, that we're suing. I want to get into some of the details of, of, of why this matters and what you think may be going on, but, uh, you know, one of the reasons that this is a difficult story to tell these days is because there has been so much disinformation from the the Trumper MAGA mobs big lie about voting systems uh, having stolen the election for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. So just to sort of clear the boards about that, Susan Greenhall, uh, and, and sort of separate your legitimate work, your legitimate concerns from these evidence free partisan claims made by Trump and friends. Do you or does the nonpartisan free speech for people have any reason to believe or have you seen any evidence that computerized voting systems, whether via modems or anything else in 2020, were somehow used to change the results or steal the, uh, the, the 2020 presidential election? No, there's no evidence. That's the, you know, that's the, the, the key point. Whenever anyone uh, went and did the right thing, which was to do an audit or a recount of the paper ballots, they find that they match the computer-generated result, and mm-hmm. we should always be doing that. We should always have that sort of transparency and check on a computerized result, and we should rely um, as little as possible on the computers by by using handwork paper ballots predominantly. Um, but the there's no evidence to suggest that there is any sort of widespread or mm-hmm. you know or substantive computer-generated errors in the vote counts anywhere. Okay, so with, yeah, or or that I've seen. Anyone's produced? Yeah, exactly. Um, And because you know, I've I've had to spend time saying, well, there could be these systems, and uh, these modems certainly could be used for something like that. But we have seen no evidence of it, and the evidence that we have seen, like you say, when they go back and they do hand counts and so forth. The results are all uh, showing up exactly the same, essentially, as they were uh, when they were initially counted. So, all right, that said, uh, before we get to what we do not know about what happened uh, that resulted in the EAC somehow uh, sort of unilaterally removing this uh, previous ban on modems and voting systems that you had uh, won in that uh, long development process, what do we know about what happened? Has the EAC given any public explanation for why they removed that ban on modems in voting systems that uh, had been, uh, you know, fought for for so long and, and ultimately won before they took it away? Um, there is sort of an explanation, but I'll say it doesn't hold water that much, okay. if you'll allow me. Um, mm-hmm. They had... Um, so we had heard some rumors that this this change was being made to the draft standards from some some people who kind of had their ear to the ground, mm-hmm. and uh, we free speech for people um, wrangled a bunch of computer security experts and said this is a bad idea, right? And they all said yes, this is a bad idea, and sent a letter to the EAC 
um, in um, actually uh, um, we sent two letters, actually one in December, one in January, saying um, you really don't want to do this. You don't want to allow the wireless um, connectivity capability in the mm-hmm. voting machines for all these reasons. Um, not for nothing, there was an example in um, Virginia, and I'm sure Brad, you remember the Win Vote, the, oh, the, yes. m- the machine in in Virginia that had wireless capability. And if you disabled it by, via software, all you did was disable the 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 um, the application. The wireless networking radio stayed on, mm-hmm. so that meant that you couldn't activate you you couldn't um engage in the connectivity but the machine was still going out there and connecting to stuff right (laughs) so it just shows how important it is not to have that radio or that modem in there at all and not and not to just simply try and disable it by software or something like that yeah and those they had to they they had to get rid of those systems once they discovered that uh, that uh, they had to get rid of them like a month before they were holding elections uh, Mm -hmm. in virginia because they found that people could sit in the parking lot and actually change election results from their car to, with these particular machines. That's right. And even if even if the election officials had ostensibly shut the wireless off mm-hmm. because all they were doing was shutting off the software portion right. while the radio stayed on and it was still accessible. So um, so that we sent this letter from um, over two dozen computer security experts, mm-hmm. um, mostly in some election experts, um, saying please don't weaken this provision in the, the next version of the voluntary voting system guidelines. And um, the and there was a lot of press on that. And the EAC, in response to that, put out a memo saying, trying to say, well, we didn't really change it, that the, that the draft that had been written all along still allowed this. We just made it clearer. And I would argue that that really doesn't um, pass the smell test because mm-hmm. they added a line specifically which says um, this prohibition uh, it doesn't preclude allowing wireless networking hardware in the system. And then it had some other language changes that specifically allowed it to be a configuration change, and you wouldn't have had to make those changes if it said that all along. So they, they were trying to kind of twist it or spin it a little bit and kind of parse the language and say, well, we didn't change it. We, it was like that all along. But... Um, the you know the facts don't really support that. No, and of course this notion that well you can have the modems in, we'll just have them disabled with the software. Well, if they're disabled with the software, they can be re-enabled uh, by a bad guy, by an insider or whatever. They can just turn them right back on with that same software, and no one would ever know. Susan Greenhall, you said that uh, vendors and election officials uh, really wanted these modems to uh in their uh in in these systems uh why you know knowing what we know and knowing how insecure it makes them why do the vendors want it why do the elections officials want it um so i'll just say the there's some election officials i don't want to use too broad a brush but Mm -hmm. there are some election officials that want to use wireless modems to transmit election results back from the individual precinct and voting locations to the county headquarters on election night, as you had mentioned, and they, they, uh, the, by and large, the biggest arguments that I hear is that there's a lack of understanding of the, the actual nature of those types of connections and the vulnerability. 
so we hear election officials saying, well, it isn't really going over the Internet, and the transmission is only one way, and it's encrypted. And all of that stuff doesn't mean anything when you t- look at the real security profile. And you listen to Andrew Appel, you mm-hmm. played Andrew Appel, and he explained it very well. And the problem is that we have election officials that very frequently are listening to the vendors who are giving them talking points and saying, this is going to make your life easier, and don't worry about the security problems, mm-hmm. because we've taken care of them, because it's encrypted, and it's one way, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing when it comes to hacking systems knows why those precautions really are wildly insufficient, whereas... um, they, you know, election official may may sound good to them, and they think it, it makes a lot of sense. And now it's going to make my life easier, so I'm just going to listen to this side of the argument. And 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 part of the problem is we have a real lack of leadership um, from the federal agency that's supposed to be helping assist election officials to run elections um, more efficiently, securely, accessibly, and transparently at the AC. So not only are they weakening the standards, but they're also not providing. Um, the guidance that they should be going to election officials and saying, hey, no, this is the truth of the matter. Mm-hmm. What the vendors are telling you isn't really true. But, you know, that, that ship has sailed, too, if they're you know, letting the vendors <laughs> help weaken the standards directly. But, you know, in an ideal world, we'd have that sort of leadership. But because so, the vendors are saying to the election officials, this will make your life easier because you'll have the results right away on election night. They'll be all nice and neat in a, in a database for you. You don't have to go around collecting this and that. And you'll you'll have these numbers to give to the media right off the bat, I guess, is is why uh, an election official might like it after that. You know, they get that sell from the vendors. But, you know, as we saw in in in, two th- in, in 2020, you know, there, there's no actual evidence of votes that were flipped uh, with computers from Biden to Trump as the Trumpers are, you know, have been pretending since election night. Uh, but they are not wrong that results can be changed in this way. And even if they weren't. Uh, it seems to me the EAC would have an interest in not allowing these systems to be vulnerable in this way that it would allow the kind of false claims that we have seen uh, since the election. You would think that the EAC would want to prevent even the suspicion of such things by simply banning the use of these modems, no? Well, exactly right. And and I'll just give you like a little bit of historical context, too is that the older versions of the voting system guidelines, as you mentioned, did not ban wireless either. But they mm-hmm. did have, it had, it, it had uh, provisions about if you're going to do it, you have to do it like this, but it didn't ban it at all. However, the election assistance commissioners liked to go around and tell people that they did. They gave testimony um, in front of the Senate Rules Committee mm-hmm. where they were asked specifically can voting systems that are certified by the EAC connect to the Internet or use any sort of Internet connectivity? And they said, absolutely not. They wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post and said um, anything that's certified by the EAC cannot be connected to the Internet, cannot connect to the Internet. That was untrue. So they recognized the PR value of being able to say, if we're certifying your voting machine at this federal level, Mm -hmm. it cannot connect to the Internet. Um, but then when push came to shove, they didn't actually want to do it and make, you know, and have that actual ban. So it's very, it's very disturbing that there's yeah. this lack of consistency that first that they recognize that that's something that they should should have and tell people that it's there when it doesn't, when it isn't actually there. 
And then they go and lie about it. I mean, that's and what it comes to. You're uh, saying it in, in a more blunt way. Yes, yes I am. Uh, because they have been lying about it. I, I suppose you can make some, uh, you know, the argument that there are some federal officials, maybe at DHS, who simply didn't know because they were told by the EAC or even by the vendors, no, these are never uh, connected to the Internet. I remember Barack Obama used to say that all the time. I don't think he was lying, but I think that that's what he had been told. But it is just not true. We, we We've seen this from the EAC uh, now, uh, Susan Greenhall. I know you've been covering this stuff as long uh, or longer than I have. We've seen this uh, since the EAC was created by the Help America Vote Act in 2002. So they've been around for um, going on 20 years now. They've always been underfunded. Um, so, you know, not a huge agency, not a powerful agency, but they always have seemed to sort of cover for the vendors, the people they are supposed to be overseeing and regulating. We spoke just a week or two ago, for example, with election integrity advocate Jenny Cohn on this show uh, about her investigative report uh, at Who, What, Why that was based on emails obtained via records requests that showed that Again, ESNS uh, in Texas were discovered to have a bug in their software that made it essentially impossible to confirm if the software being installed onto the voting machines was actually the real software, the actual code that had been federally uh, certified. Uh, now, that would normally result in the software not being allowed for use on a voting system or really any other system where, you know, you, you can't confirm that this is the legitimate software. But ESNS claimed, oh, we know about this bug. It's no big thing. Everything's fine. And incredibly, the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, supposedly the federal watchdog, uh, the only one for this sort of thing, they seem to back up ESNS on this rather than the you know, the concerned Texas election officials. Is this yet another case where this federal agency is has seemingly been captured by the uh, corporate outfits that they're supposed to be overseeing and regulating? Absolutely. And that that is such a, a disturbing bombshell report. I, I There's so much in it. But the EAC... Um, Yes, they were kind of excusing what happened without what really should have happened if they were following their own testing and certification manual and procedures is that they should have opened an investigation for the potential decertification of those systems that ESNS has certified. And instead, they kind of helped them sort of mm -hmm. band-aid over it and act like and look the other way and act like everything is fine. And what's interesting about that is that back in 20. I think it started in in, uh, in, in probably 2008 or, or 2010. Mm -hmm. The GAO did an investigation of the EAC's testing and certification mm -hmm. program, and they had flagged specifically this issue about the software verification. Uh, and they said the EAC doesn't have any uh, procedures or processes in place to make sure that the software verification that the vendors are providing actually works appropriately, and and this is depriving the states and local jurisdictions of a reliable way to verify that the right software is in the voting systems. And the GAO, if you you can still see it on their website, mm -hmm. it's an uh, it, it's a uh, they wrote to the AC and said this is a problem. You guys need to fix this. 
and the EAC never did, and it says not implemented. They didn't bother to address it, and then it comes home to roost that that's exactly what happened, and rather than address it and come up with, you know, try and root out it and maybe go back to what the GAO yep. had, had told them back then, They've done nothing except band-aid over it. And so I'll just, um, you know, I think in a bigger picture, one of the problems that we have here is, is as you mentioned, the EAC is is way, way too deferential to the vendors. Um, and at the same time, they are occupying this space at the federal government when it deals with election security. Um, much more prominently in this space with election officials than the Department of Homeland Security, and either I think they need to either, you know, like, do the right thing and do their job, or they need to get out of the lane mm. and let come up with some other way, because there's an expectation by members of Congress that this is being taken care of, the EAC is doing their job, they're yep. developing the standards, they're testing voting systems, mm-hmm. um, unless you scratch the surface and find out what's really going on. Um, you might think on the outside that they're doing their job, and they're not. And nope. they're taking up that space, and that makes us all less uh, less safe and secure in our elections. And that has been the case for years with the EAC. I, I wrote a, a, a chapter in a book back in uh, about the EAC in 2004, sort of papering over a, a voting system that was used in, uh, in Nevada at the time, made by a company that's now out of business called Sequoia. Uh, that it was completely uncertified. It was used unlawfully in the 2004 election in Nevada. And the EAC, again, just went back and said, uh, OK, we'll certify it. And they backdated the certification <laughs> for it. They just made it all better for the vendors. This is not a good federal agency. It needs to, as you say, uh, be, be cleaned up or gotten out of the way so somebody else can do it. Because really, nobody is doing it. And I think a lot of Americans think there is some federal body that is overseeing all of this to make sure that nothing could happen. That is simply not the case. Uh, I got just a minute here uh, or two, uh, Susan, on the... Um the lawsuit now that freespeechforpeople.org has filed to get at the records to find out what happened to change this whole modem thing after uh, the EAC met with the vendors. When do we expect, do you expect to, uh, have you have you received an answer from them? I know you filed it this week. Have they responded yet to your lawsuit? And if not, what happens from here? Uh, we have not heard a response yet. Um, I think we'll, you know, we have to go through the legal process. We'll say free feature people litigated a, a public records suit in Indiana um, two years ago, or actually last year won it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have a good record. I think we're, by, I like our chances because it's it's just so egregious that they, are, they have a responsibility under the federal law to produce those records. They've acknowledged they're there and they've produced nothing. So, <laughs> um you know, we'll, we'll we have to kind of go through the 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 legal process, mm-hmm. and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really speak to that in detail. But I, I like our chances. Well, thank you for holding their feet to the fire. And by the way, this new the VVSG 2.0, as it's called, um, has that now been finalized? Is that now the I don't want to call it the law of the land because VVSG actually stands for voluntary voting system guidelines. States don't even actually have to follow this if they don't want. But uh, has that now been finalized with the uh, weakened uh, uh, standards about modems? It has. It's been voted on and adopted by the, uh, the four commissioners and 
Now they have to go about um, developing an implementation plan. But I will say one thing that I found I found very disquieting is when the after that it passed, the vendors put out a statement, a press release, uh, talking about it and, and applauding it, and then they said, "We look forward to coming up with an implementation framework to get our existing systems certified to VDSG 2.0." Which, in other words, we want you to help us figure out a way just to put the two, the new VVSG 2.0 sticker and wow. seal of approval on the, you know janky machines that are out there right now. That are all over the country, that are 15 years old, and we want your or approval you, for that crap, too. Right, basically. or using Windows 7, and that's outdated, <sighs> stuff like that. Unbelievable. Thank you for staying on this, Susan. Please stay in touch with this as it moves forward. And by the way, thank you for your years of work on all of this. Uh, you know, the institutional memory of folks like yourself uh, who have been doing this for so long is infinitely valuable. And of course, uh, thanks to freespeechforpeople.org for taking on what I believe to be some of the most important legal fights in the country right now. This is just one of them. Uh, so thanks for both of those things and for joining us today. And Please let us know as this moves forward. Thank you very much. And Brad, you t I, I say that right back at you, since I know you've been alongside in this fight all along, too. So yeah. uh, we have good company. You're very kind. Susan Greenhall is the Senior Advisor on Election Security at freespeechforpeople.org. You can find them on the, Twitter at, on the Twitters at FSFP. And you can also find Susan, a great follow on Twitter. She is S.E. Greenhall. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Brad. You bet. You know, this is so maddening because this is just <laughs> another example of regulatory capture. These agencies that are supposed to oversee these companies and these, you know, but these companies end up controlling the agencies. We yes. see this in so many places. I had some other stories I was going to cover along those lines, uh, but for our breaking news today. But uh, I'm sure I will in the future. We see it a lot. Des, you see it a lot in your coverage of Absolutely. environmental issues. Absolutely. In the environmental issues, it's pretty much in every agency in which there is a regulated industry. That regulated industry has a very strong financial interest in capturing that agency. And it was, of course, made very easy under Trump because he actually put industry representatives in charge of those agencies. Yep. But, uh, you know, in many cases, like at the EAC, it's it's a it happens under Republican and Democratic uh, administrations alike. It is maddening. And uh, it is exactly what the people do not want. Right. They have to be watched like a hawk. And thank God we got folks like Susan and Free Speech for People trying yep. at least to do exactly that. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our uh, closing few minutes and uh, maybe something to laugh about after a day like this. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. 
please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Cause if you like the way you look that much Oh baby, you should go and love yourself Welcome back. It's Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, uh, topsy-turvy day today with so much breaking news. So let's just uh, get out with this, Desi Doyen. Okay. Uh, Former House Speaker John Boehner. Remember him? He was before... Uh, Paul Ryan. Before Paul Ryan, who's also now gone. But anyway, Boehner tore into right-wing media... And what he calls the GOP's, quote, crazy caucus in a book excerpt that was published by Politico on Friday, targeting Senator Ted Cruz, targeting Fox News's Sean Hannity, following uh, targeting the late Roger Ailes, who used to run Fox News and former uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, among others. He uh, now is apparently seeking to cast himself in his new memoir titled On the House, a Washington memoir as one of the last leaders of the GOP's sensible conservative movement before the party was co-opted by Donald Trump and other members who dedicated themselves to, quote, wedge issues and conspiracies and crusades. What kind of world do we live in where John Boehner is now the sensible one in the Republican (laughs) Party? Liz Cheney, somehow we're supporting her doing the right thing. Yeah, the world is upside down. Nonetheless, uh, over at uh, on Twitter, um, Jonathan Swan of Axios Notes that uh, when Speaker Boehner was recording his audiobook, he says, I was told by sources that during these wine-soaked sessions, Boehner would deviate from the book's text and insert random, violent attacks on Ted Cruz. Uh, and then he adds, well, here's some tape. Listen to the end. Freedom means you can be a genius and invent new products that make you millions of dollars and helps millions of people. It means you're free to work your way to becoming the first in your family to go to college. It means you're free to reach as high as you want, no matter where you came from, even if you're a little kid sweeping a bar out in southwest Ohio. Take it from me. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. For no apparent reason. Thank there you very is. much, former Speaker Boehner. All right, we have to get out. My thanks to uh, my guest today, Susan Greenhall of Free Speech for People, to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. <laughs> if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible only by those of you who stop by bradblog.com donate to help us stay on your public airwaves so we can share clips like that with you. If you, uh, if uh, where am I? Uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. Because if you like the way you look that much oh baby you should go and love yourself and if you think that i'm still holding 
know, there's something you should go and love yourself.